Once again, uh, my name is Nate Maxfield. For those of you who don't know me, I serve as an elder on staff here at Missio. And this morning, it's my privilege and honor to be able to open the word of God with you. We are wrapping up a four-part uh, series for Advent entitled The Songs of the Season. We began by looking at Mary's song. We looked at Zechariah's song. Last week, we looked at the song of the angels. And this week, we're going to finish up by looking at the song of Simeon. And Simeon, as we'll read, he was a man who was waiting for a consolation. He was waiting for a comfort. Now, the very word consolation, it means comfort in the midst of suffering. Uh, It means an alleviation of grief. And implicit in this idea of consolation, right, is this longing for some kind of relief, right? There's no doubt that there's a bunch of us in this room who are, after the year that we've had, longing for some kind of relief. Amen? Can I get a witness? (laughs) Uh, We take comfort in thinking this too, hopefully soon, shall pass, right? My wife Jillian and I, we have a 10-month-old daughter at home, Ruthie, And being that she's 10 months old, she is into everything. She's climbing on everything. Everything that she can open or close, she's opening or closing. And as you can imagine, uh, it's normal at this stage of a child's life to daily have bumps, bruises, a pinched finger, right? And when these uh, little instances befall her, she reaches out to Jillian and I for comfort, for relief, for consolation. Now, it should be noted, though, that Simeon is not just waiting for any old consolation. He's longing for the consolation of all consolations, the comfort of all comforts, a relief that can only come from God's faithfulness to provide a Savior for his people. And spoiler alert, he sees this Savior today in our text. And as he responds He sings a song of blessing to God and a song of blessing to Mary. And in that Holy Spirit-inspired response, we learn three critical aspects of the identity of the Christ. And so we're going to look at those today. So turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 35. Luke 2. 25 through 35. We'll have this up on the screen for you too. Give you a second to turn there. Luke 2, 25 through 35. Here now, God's holy word. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms And blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared 
in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we want to take a moment right now to thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for revealing yourself to us through it. And God, as we seek to learn to it together, learn from it, God, this morning together, we pray, Lord, that you would turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and fix our gaze on your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, as your word has unfolded this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to behold the light of our Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen. How about that introduction of Simeon? Verse 25, uh, it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and what was distinct about him? And this man was righteous and devout. Well, I'll be. That's quite the debut, if I ever uh, would say so myself. Uh, But what was it about Simeon that made him to be considered righteous? Well, if we continue in verse 25, it gives us some clues. It first tells us that, what? He was waiting for the consolation of, of Israel. This is the consolation I was just telling you about just a minute ago. The consolation of all consolations, the comfort of all comforts, because it was tied to the long-awaited arrival of the Savior of God's people. That promised seed of Eve, who all those generations back in the garden was promised that he would rise up and crush the head of the serpent. That promise of an offspring to Abraham made all those generations ago that through his offspring all nations would be blessed. The promise of an eternal kingdom. The promise of a king on David's throne whose rule and reign would never end. Isaiah's suffering servant whose wounds would heal his people. Years, countless years, of the pangs of God's people longing for such a savior, for such a kingdom, full of hope and heartache, grief and expectation. Simeon believed that this promised one was coming, and he longed for it to come to pass. He didn't just simply hope that it was true, right? Like the scripture here tells us that he was waiting for it. For him to be waiting for it, that language is full of anticipation, right? Now, we know that when God made the promise to Abraham, all the way back in the account in Genesis, that Abraham believed God, right? And what? It was counted to him as righteousness. It was a righteousness through faith in God, his word, his promise. And much the same, here we have a man, Simeon, who has received the account of God's promise and by faith, He believes it. This is Simeon's righteousness. We also see that there's an outworking 
in his life of this righteousness that came through faith. Simeon was not only righteous, but we see here that he was also devout. So in other words, uh, he lived in light of this promise that he believed. His life was established on it. He lived in cooperation with this promise. And so verse 25 tells us Simeon's righteous, right? He's devout. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. And we also read that the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, God's word often uses this phrase to describe a prophet, one who has the gift of prophecy. And often when prophets are introduced in scripture, they're introduced as one who has the Holy Spirit upon them. And so we see Simeon here has the gift of prophecy. And in verse 26, we're told that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Can you imagine such longing, such patient endurance? And then to hear from God himself, Simeon, this is going to be fulfilled in your lifetime. And guess what? You're going to lay eyes on the Christ yourself. You can imagine like, Ah, this must have just been such an insane anticipation. Like, how many days did Simeon wake up wondering, is this the day? And one day, Simeon woke up, and it was the day. And on that day, verse 27 tells us that Simeon came into the Spirit. He came in the Spirit into the temple. And so Simeon, in communion with the Holy Spirit, he makes his way into the temple on the very same day that Joseph Mary and Jesus happened to be there. And at the tail end of verse 27, it tells us that Joseph and Mary had brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. Okay, that's just a short statement there. Uh, But at first glance, it might seem like a moot point to us, but it's absolutely not. And there's something significant for us to unpack here. So I'm going to take a moment and just park and let's consider this. So regarding the custom of the law. So the customs of the law that Mary and Joseph are seeking to uh, obey, they come from Leviticus 12 and they come from Exodus 13. So starting in Leviticus 12, the law of, of Moses states that any woman who has born a child is unclean and must make atonement for that sin by making an offering to the priest. And this law really kind of serves as uh, evidence for original sin, right? Uh, purification must be made as a child comes forth from the mother unclean and so by the act of childbirth, Uh, mother is consequently defiled. So the purification must be made. If some trace of sin did not dwell in man at childbirth, there'd be no need for this purification, but nonetheless, it's there in the law, Leviticus 12. And then secondly, Exodus 13, uh, the Mosaic law states that any firstborn who was a male was to be consecrated to the Lord, presented to the Lord as holy as his. And so you can go back with me. These verses won't be on the screen, but if you go back to verse 22, Uh, of Luke chapter 2 it says this and when the time had come for their purification according to the law of Moses they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord verse 23 as it's written in the law of the Lord every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons so This is why Joseph and Mary are there with Jesus in the temple, to obey these commands. Now, 
I said there's something significant that we need to unpack here. And so I want to do that. And here's what's significant. It's really two parts, really quickly. First, it's important to know that these commands of the law ultimately were designed to point the Israelites forward to the means of the salvation that God would work. Right? Like we know that Old Testament sacrifices, they point forward to a better sacrifice. They point forward to a once-for-all sacrifice that would atone for the sins of the world. As for presenting the firstborn male, uh, it was designed to cause the Israelites to look back and remember God's deliverance at the Passover. Moses even says in Exodus 13, if your son asks why you're presenting him, tell him about the Passover. When the Lord spared the firstborn of every Israelite household whose doorpost was covered by the blood of the lamb. And we know that this points forward to a better lamb, a pure spotless lamb whose blood would be the deliverance of his people through faith. So that's the first aspect that's significant about this. All these things point forward to the fulfillment of God's salvation, the means by which he would work salvation, and it all points us to Jesus Christ. So that's the first significant thing. And then secondly, here in today's text, the second significant thing is the one to whom these commands point he himself here is humbly submitting to these customs for our sake. He's already been circumcised. We read that at the beginning uh, of chapter 2. And he wasn't born sinful, right? But yet this purification is still being made. And he's being presented, the firstborn male in the temple, to God. And what's happening here? is that already, at only 40-ish days old, Jesus is already taking the heavy yoke of the law upon himself, so that, as Romans 8, 3 says, through him the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Already, in this account, Jesus taking on the heavy burden of the law to fulfill it for us. And the irony is that as he does this, the fact that the Messiah is in the room is lost on just about everybody. Like you picture it, they're in the temple, the sacrifices are happening, everything that this worship points to, the one that it points to, he's crossed the threshold of the temple. Unbeknownst to people and priests alike, except for Mary Joseph, and then finally, a man from Jerusalem named Simeon, who was righteous and devout, a man filled with the Holy Spirit who came to the temple and recognizes him. The Lord's Christ is here. For Simeon, this was the day. And as he lays eyes on the Lord's Christ in the spirit, he recognizes him immediately. And verse 27 tells us that he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. You know what he's saying here, right? God, I can die happy because you have fulfilled your promise. The consolation of all consolations 
the comfort of all comforts, right there in his sight, right there in his arms. Finally, relief. And here in this account, through the rest of Simeon's Holy Spirit-inspired blessing to God and Mary, God reveals three critical aspects about the identity of Jesus, and they're these. Number one, Jesus is God's salvation, period. Number two, Jesus is a light to all nations. And number three, Jesus is also a sign that is opposed. He's God's salvation, he is a light to all nations, and he is a sign that is opposed. And for the rest of our time together, I want to look at these three things, and I want to look at what it means for us today here in this room as we encounter this revelation from God. So first, Jesus is God's salvation. Verse 27, Simeon says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. And why? Verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Notice that he doesn't just say, for my eyes have seen Jesus. I think there's something significant here too. He doesn't just say, for my eyes have seen the Christ. No. Simeon gets to the meat and potatoes of what Jesus means to the entire world. And he says, point blank, my eyes have seen your salvation. Clear as day, it's here for us in the text. Make no mistake about it. Jesus Christ is God's salvation. And in verse 31, Simeon declares that Jesus is the salvation that God has prepared. This is a salvation that God himself has appointed and has prepared. It's not some plan B or some knee-jerk reaction to man's sin. This was God's eternal plan. This was God's plan A from the start. Communicated over centuries through prophets to his people and sometimes with like explicit clarity. I mean, think about this. Isaiah in the spirit looking forward to the day of Christ. He says this in Isaiah 25, 9. He says, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That's what's happening today in today's text with Simeon. This is the Savior. This is God. This is the promised one that we have waited so long for. The time for rejoicing is at hand. Jesus is God's salvation that God himself has prepared. And verse 31 continues. In the presence of all peoples. God's salvation in Jesus Christ is not meant to be a secret. It is not meant to remain concealed. God's plan all along was that his salvation, Jesus Christ, would be revealed to all the ends of the earth. In sending Jesus, God, in the words of Isaiah, was bearing his holy arm before the eyes of all nations that the nations would see his salvation. We heard it this morning in our call to worship. Psalm 98, it says the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And so this brings us to uh, Simeon's second revelation 
of the person of Christ. How is Jesus, God's salvation, uh, seen in all the earth? Number two, because he's a light to all nations. Because Jesus is a light to all nations. Verse 32 says, he is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. God's purpose was that Jesus Christ, the son of righteousness himself, would be a light for all the world. Not just for the people of Israel. That through the revelation of Jesus Christ, those living in darkness would be called into his glorious light. That the eyes of the spiritually blind would be open. That those living under the bondage of sin would be set free. That all who follow him would not walk in darkness, but instead would have the light of life. In this manner, God's salvation, prepared in the presence of all people, it would reach to the ends of the earth. And this is, this is a big deal, because up until this point, any revelations about the Christ had been given to the people of Israel, right? They were the people of God's covenantal promises. Anyone outside of Israel was considered strangers to God, strangers to his promises, strangers to his people. Uh, but now we see that the glory of Israel has nothing to do with anything pertaining to them as a physical people group, or a physical nation, but it has everything to do with God himself and how from them would come a redeemer who would be a light of revelation to all nations and through this redeemer, God's salvation would reach to all the ends of the earth and all who would be considered his people would be those who follow him, who walk in his light, who embrace him by faith. My eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And we read in verse 33, and his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Mary and Joseph standing there as Simeon utters this praise to God and as the Holy Spirit through Simeon declares that Jesus is God's salvation for the world. Jesus is a light to all nations. Now, it tells us that they marveled, and I mean, wouldn't you, like, and we know, obviously, Mary and Joseph knew something was up with Jesus, right? Like, we've read about it the past few weeks. We see it in the gospel, right? But now, just so explicitly laid out for them what Jesus means for the entire world. It's amazing. And you know, it's Hallmark movie season. My wife loves Hallmark movies. I can't stand them. I need consolation and relief if there's one on. I need to get away from it. But if this was a Hallmark movie, this is probably where it would end, right? Everyone marvels, they rejoice, hip hip hooray, and somewhere some big city CEO from Jerusalem would move out to the Judean countryside and open a small gift shop and then the credits would roll, right? Merry Christmas. But this isn't where the encounter with Simeon ends and it's about to take a quick and heavy turn as we'll see look at verse 34 with me and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother behold this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed 
A sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Takes a drastic turn. What's ironic about these words that Simeon is saying to Mary is that they're listed as a blessing. I mean, it seems strange, right? Can you picture this on a Christmas card? Season's greetings and the name of the sign who's opposed who exposes the sinful human heart. Love the Maxfields. Merry Christmas. (laughs) It seems strange, right? But perhaps it's a blessing that Simeon is preparing Mary for what is in store. This was not going to be a story of universal praise and adoration. This was not going to play out like a hallmark narrative. This would be a story, a narrative, that results in a bloody cross. Mary's own heart would come to be pierced with anguish as she beholds with her own two eyes the crucified Christ. That's because God didn't send his son as a gift to a world that loved him. It was messier than that. God sent his son to save his enemies. The light of Christ tells a certain truth about a world of darkness that a world of darkness doesn't want to hear. It's evidence of human depravity. Yes, Jesus is God's salvation and it's good news, but it also implies bad news. We need saving. And God, in sending Jesus, even before Jesus says a word, even as he's lying helpless in a manger, God sending him communicates the truth about our sin. As such, Jesus Christ, who is himself God's salvation, Jesus Christ, who is himself a light to all nations, he also stands as a sign that is opposed. And we read here in the text that he was appointed by God for the fall and rising of many in Israel. So some would rise to salvation, to eternal life, but some would also fall. From the outset, he's a sign that is opposed that reveals the hearts of men. And in telling the truth about our sinful nature, he was going to be a stone of offense which would cause many in Israel to fall. I mean, think about it. Any Israelite who suddenly hears that their salvation has nothing to do with their heritage, their salvation has nothing to do uh, with their adherence to uh, customs, uh, you know, that um, it's not going to make them God's true people just to be born into the Israelites and to these customs. Many of them fought against it. To them, Jesus was a stone of offense. Then you think about the Israelite who rejects Jesus and then looks on with jealousy and hardness of heart as the Gentiles, the strangers of God with no custom to fall back on, no heritage to fall back on, by faith are being included in the promise. Jesus is a stone of offense to them. Zoom out of Israel for a second. Jesus is a stone of offense to anyone anywhere who refuses to acknowledge the problem of their sinfulness. He's a stone of offense to anybody who thinks that in the end God's just going to grade on a curve and I should be okay. 
He's a stone of offense to anybody who thinks that they have any amount of merit or righteousness to earn God's favor or to get them into heaven. Because the truth that God tells us in sending his son tells us the exact opposite. We are not good enough. We are sinful. We are objects of God's wrath. We have to be saved, period. I have an extended family member who, every time that I visit them, somehow God provides an opportunity to talk about the gospel. But every time that I mention the word sin, she shuts it down. <laughs> the truth that's communicated in the sending of a savior, it's a stumbling block for her. And as long as this remains a stumbling box for her, as long as she can't acknowledge her sin, she'll never see the goodness of God in sending a solution. His own son that he spared not to purchase the pardon of all who would trust in him by faith. Until she can come to grips with God's verdict about our sin, she remains blinded to his light and the Jesus that's revealed in scripture remains a stone of offense to her. But the Holy Spirit's message through Simeon is clear. God is, or Jesus is God's salvation. He is a light to all nations, but he is also a stone, a sign that is opposed. And Simeon seals the main idea with a powerful punch. Our response to him exposes our hearts. By our response, you and I stand exposed. We either stand, stand exposed as those who acknowledge our sinfulness and truly trust and embrace him as our savior, or we stand exposed as those who reject him. He's either our cornerstone, like he was for Simeon, the hope, the faith that our entire life is established upon, or he's a stone of offense that we kick against in obedience perpetually. The warning is that if he remains a stone of offense to us, that stone of offense will eventually be our ruin. God's word tells us that the cornerstone that's rejected will crush those who reject him. And it's worth noting that this will be from their own kicking against him. It's a result of their own choice. Their guilt will be on their head. But the good news of Simeon's message is this. Anyone, anyone, anyone who puts their trust in Jesus, he will be to them the consolation of all consolations. He will be to them the comfort of all comforts. He will be to them the relief of all reliefs because he will be their salvation and eternal hope. Maybe today you're here and you've never put your trust in Jesus. Maybe today... He's a stone of offense to you. Or maybe you would just say, you know what? I wouldn't say he's a stone of offense. He's certainly not my cornerstone. If that's you this morning, I would encourage you to look at this narrative and look at a righteous response to this revelation. 
Simeon, devout, righteous, he embraced God's promise. He trusted God. And I would encourage you today to trust in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, first, there's no way around this. Trusting Jesus means trusting God's verdict about your sin. Until you come to grips with that, until you acknowledge it, he will remain a stone of offense to you. We must embrace his verdict. Now, you might say that seems harsh. You might say that seems unfair. And so if you want to take the conversation there, we'll do it. If you want to talk about something unfair, let's talk about something unfair. The case for something unfair, you heard me mention before that this narrative results in a cross. What's unfair is that Jesus Christ, God's son, the only one who was without sin was punished for the world's sin. That's not fair. But in this is our salvation that Jesus Christ, the pure, perfectly spotless lamb who bore the weight of the law upon himself and perfectly fulfilled it for us, the one who was without sin willingly bore our sin upon himself. He died the death that we deserved, even death on a cross. He is the better sacrifice by whom all who trust in him will be delivered. And his work is done. He rose again, he ascended on high, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Trust his verdict about your sin and then trust in his finished work on your behalf for your salvation. There is no other consolation for the human heart. In the end, our best attempt at righteousness, our attempt to affirm ourselves or save ourselves, all our own perceived innate goodness, own perceived innate righteousness will be of no consolation, it will be of no comfort, it will be of no relief when we stand before the judgment of a holy God. Let Christ be your cornerstone. Let him be the hope upon which your life is firmly established. That's my plea to you. If he's been a stone of offense or if you've not yet trusted in him. Next, for anybody here who has trusted in Christ. Much like Simeon waited with anticipation for his first advent, his first coming. We now as his people live in great anticipation of his second coming. His second advent. God revealed that his first advent was imminent and Simeon believed it and he lived in light of it. God has revealed that his second coming, his second advent is imminent. Believe it and live in light of it. He will return. We will be his people and we will live with him forever. One way or another, that day is coming and we will see it. There will come that day. And God's word calls us to live in light of this promise. To, as we heard from Romans 12 today, 
to rejoice in hope, to be patient in the afflictions that we face, to be constant in prayer as we walk as sojourners in a world of darkness, keeping in step with the Spirit as we saw Simeon do, enduring patiently in the midst of the trials of this life as you and I keep our eyes on the finish line. When you and I, like Simeon, guess what? We're gonna see. We're gonna behold our Savior. It's coming. Finally, as we live in cooperation with this promise, with Christ's return, God calls you and I to shine the light of Christ in the dark places. Because here's the deal. He's still in the business of extending his salvation to the ends of the earth. That means your own neighborhood. That means your own workplace. That means your own family. And he's using all of his people to do it. And that includes you. People of God, let's encourage one, of the, one another in these things. And all the more as we see the day approaching. And may we together hold fast to the confession of our hope. Why? Simple. Because he who promised is faithful. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Would you pray with me? Father, we rejoice in the hope that we read about here. The implication that all who would trust in your son, he is their salvation. He is their comfort. He is their relief for all eternity. Lord, if there's anybody here to whom he's been a stone of offense, may this be the day of their relenting. May they respond to the salvation, the only means of salvation, God, that you have provided. And may we as your people endure in hope, in fellowship with you and one another as we see the day approaching. May the light of Christ indeed shine through us to a world of darkness as your salvation continues to advance to the ends of the earth. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the salvation, the light. Amen.